Good morning. Hey, the Shearers are here this morning. <laughs> Welcome to church. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. Just like a tree that grows by the water Let the strong winds blow, I will not move Just like a child secure in the love of a father Never letting go, I cling to you In every situation, no room for fear and doubt. No matter what I'm facing, the song of my heart is ringing out. I'll stand on your promise, I will not be moved. Nothing can tear us apart. My faith won't be shaken. strong foundation everything else will fade but you remain in every situation no room for fear and doubt no matter what I'm facing the song of my heart is ringing out I'll stand on your promise I will Shaking, I'm anchored in 
Your love is devoted Like a ring of solid gold Like a vow that is tested Like a covenant of old Your love is enduring Through the winter rain Beyond the horizon With mercy for today Faithful you have been Faithful you will be You pledge yourself to me And it's why I sing Your praise will ever be on my lips Ever be on my lips Your praise will Ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my
Good morning. Our ministry spotlight this morning highlights our food pantry. We're having our uh, Thanksgiving food drive here this morning. And uh, our food pantry, the church, is a very active, really active ministry of our church. In fact, over the last six months, we've served approximately 70 different families in our community. And these are often not just, uh, they're often families that include extended family members, grandmas and grandpas, uncles and aunts and adult children. And so they can be families that are quite large. Um, there are lots of ways you could be involved if you'd like to be involved in the food pantry. One of them is with food donations. And we have these bags and there's a, there's a doorway that comes into the church right down here below the sanctuary. And right inside the door, hanging up on hooks, there are some food bags. And you can take these food bags to the store with you, fill it up, and drop them right there inside the uh, door. Not directly in front of the door, off to the side a little bit. And uh, those will be donations for the food pantry, and we'll use those. Uh, you can also be a part of the team. If you want to volunteer for the food pantry, let us know. Stop in at the office or give Patty a call, and we'll connect you with the right people. Um, but you can be a part of the team, doing shopping or other ways, of, you know, organizing in the food pantry, being involved in that way. And, of course, we always accept monetary gifts to help keep that food pantry going. So thank you very much for your support of the food pantry. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. And today, during the offering, the children will also be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. Your kindness leads us to repentance. Your goodness draws us to your side. Your mercy calls us to be like you. Your favor is our Yeah. 
Father, you are good. It's hard for us to say it any better than that. You are good and your mercy is forever. And we come today giving thanks for who you are. For your grace and mercy to us. Father, as we are engaged in this time of worship today, we pray that your gentle care for your children in this broken, chaotic world would be so evident. For those who suffer innocently because of cruelty and war and violence, we pray your comforting presence and we pray for your security. Father, for people who are caught in the the crossfire of war and conflict, we pray for peace. For the hungry and the homeless, we pray that you will meet their needs. We pray, Father, that you will heal and restore, that you will feed and clothe all who are in need. And Father, fill our hearts with deeper levels of compassion, that you would allow us to be your people who help soothe and calm and and be agents of healing and grace. Father, as we come today, there are many burdens that we bring with us. There are those who are grieving, and we think especially today of the family of Marjorie Kellogg. Pray that your mercy and grace would be upon each grieving heart. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues. We pray for Tim Nichols, who's having surgery tomorrow morning, for Bob Brown, Jane Swanson, for Leonard Watson and Louise Princell, for Laura Habecker, Hudson Hess, and Nancy Cole, for Brian Orbacher and Peter Lingenfelter, for Ellis Brotsman and Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, for Doris Asepian and Isla Shea, and Sheldon Emerson and Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, for Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould and Emily Cricklar, and for others who may be on our minds today, we pray for your healing grace upon them. We pray, Father, for uh, the relationships in which we're involved that are not what we would like for them to be, and we ask for your healing grace in each of them. As we think about the future, we pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment to trust you. Father, we pray for the ministries of this church, and we think today of our food pantry, and we look at this food in front of us, and thank you for the gifts that are here and for all the gifts that are given for everyone who is involved in this ministry. We pray, Father, that you would help us to just care more and more about people who have such needs. We ask that you would help us to be a church that wants to help meet those needs through your Spirit. And we pray that you would give us the ability to touch lives for your kingdom that they would see who you are by what we do. Father, we pray for churches around us. We pray for the Fellowship Wesleyan Church in West Seneca, Pastor Neil Copen. Pour out your blessing on this body of believers, that they would be united in you, and that they would be a, a force of love and grace in their community and beyond. And Father, we pray for, uh, for our world. Pray for Ben and Christine Hageman as they... Uh, Finish up their ministry this fall in Benin, West Africa. May it be fruitful and may they continue to see fruit in the days and months and years ahead. We pray for our brothers and sisters 
who uh, face persecution for their faith. And we think particularly of, of the very few Christians in Chetnya. We think of Alina and other isolated few. Give them courage and strength to live their faith and to share their faith. And we pray that more and more would come to you, that they would be encouraged together. Father, we think of people recovering from recent disasters and tragedies. We think of refugees. We think of places where there is war. Father, we ask that you would bring your grace to bear on each person in each situation. Father, we thank you for these last three weeks of our prayer vigil. And as we finish today, we pray that what we have done will not conclude today, but that this will be a catalyst to help us to be a church that prays more, that cares more, that engages you more, that we might be the people you've called us to be. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Today's scripture are select verses from the book of Zechariah. In November of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah. I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Return to me and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Everything I said through my servants, the prophets, happened to your ancestors just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, We have received what we deserved from the Lord of heaven's armies. He has done what he said he would do. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Soon I am going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. Then another message came to me from the Lord of Heaven's armies. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. I am returning to Mount Zion, and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the holy mountain. For this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. I was determined to punish you.
when your ancestors angered me, and I did not change my mind. But now I am determined to bless Jerusalem and the people of Judah. So don't be afraid, but this is what you must do. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your court that are just and that lead to peace. Don't scheme against each other. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. I have, I hate all these things, says the Lord. I will strengthen Judah and save Israel. I will restore them because of my compassion. It will be as though I had never rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, who will hear their cries. The people of Israel will become like mighty warriors, and their hearts will be happy as if by wine. Their children, too, will see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Watch for the day of the Lord is coming. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine, yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. On that day, life-giving waters will flow from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day, there will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of things uh, in your bulletin that I want to uh, make you aware of. There's um, a couple of inserts there. Uh, one just about uh, some things related to stewardship. And uh, the other is a uh, college student survey. If you're a uh, college student, we would love to connect with you a little better. And so we're trying to find out uh, the students that attend our church here at least uh, reg- somewhat regularly. So if you're a student, just fill out the form. You can uh, drive a box in the lower for you when you leave this morning. Just drop it in there. Or you can hand it to one of the pastors or an usher as you leave. We'll make sure it gets to the right place. But we would love to get that information just so we can connect with you a little bit more as, uh, as a church and uh, as your church home as you're here on campus. I also wanted to uh, just mention that uh, we collected 183 shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child this year. Thank you for everyone who contributed, uh, either making your own or coming here to the church to help with that. And uh, we are praying for that God will use those in powerful ways with children and families. And also, as I mentioned, uh, today is the end of our prayer vigil. It ends at 5 o'clock today. We have a few hours open uh, this morning and this afternoon. If you would like to come uh, one more time before the prayer vigil ends, the prayer vigil room is always open if you want to use that, but before it ends. And we, let me invite you to come at 5 o'clock tonight. I know the weather report doesn't look so great, but uh, hopefully it will be all right and we can gather here at 5 and we'll share some stories, sing together, 
uh, pray together and just sort of use that as a way of concluding uh, these three weeks of prayer that uh, many of you have been involved in. So we hope you'll join us today at 5 o'clock. Let me uh, invite you now to take a moment. Let's stand and greet one another. Gonna tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well, fare thee well. I'm gonna tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well, fare thee well. There's a better day a coming. Fare thee well, fare thee well. There's a better day a coming. Fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great getting up morning, fare thee well. Fairly well in that great getting up morning. Fairly well, fairly well. When you see the lightning flashing, fairly well, fairly well. When you hear the thunder crashing, fairly well, fairly well. When you see the stars are falling, fairly well, fairly well. When you hear those chariots calling, fairly well. Fairly well in that great getting up morning. Fairly well, fairly well in that great getting up morning. Fairly well, fairly well. When you see the lightning flashing, when you hear the thunder crashing, when you see the stars are falling, when you hear the chariots calling. Good news, chariots are coming. Good news, chariots are coming. So glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. There's a long white robe in the heaven I know. Long white robe in the heaven I know. Long white robe in the heaven I know. I said good news, chariots are coming. Good news, chariots are coming. So glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. In that great getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well. In that great getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well. In that great getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well. In that great getting up morning, fairly well, fairly well. And it's anxiety, 
But the truth of the matter is, even with all of the frightening stuff going on, it's a good day for God's people. It's a glorious day for God's people. But here's the thing about that day. God's plan, God's design, God's created purpose is that everybody would celebrate that day. Is that everybody in the world, everyone that God has created, would come to the place in their lives where they would see who God is. And on that day would celebrate with all the rest of God's people this glorious promise that God's given us. And I think when you look at the, the prophet Zechariah, and there's a whole lot going on in Zechariah. It's the longest of the minor prophets, 14 chapters. I decided we wouldn't read all that today because we wouldn't probably do anything else. It takes a long time to get through it. And so we're just going to barely scratch the surface of it. But I think there are some things in Zechariah's prophecy that speak to that day and how we live this day. Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai. Um, Haggai, as we talked about last week, uh, the, the two of them are, have come back from exile to Jerusalem. The Israelites went into exile for 70 years, and God is bringing them back in, in, in stages. And they, they start rebuilding the city and the walls, and they start on the temple, but the foundation gets laid and nothing else. And 15, 16, 17 years later, it's still the same way. And Haggai's prophecy is focused on get the temple rebuilt. And the reason for that is because God wants you to know that he's close to you and he loves you and he cares for you. And Zechariah's prophecy talks about that, speaks about it periodically. But he has a little different message. Because for Zechariah, the rebuilding of the temple is not just that God is close to them. It's not just so the people can have a place to serve him. But it's so that the temple will be the place that attracts the rest of the world to want to follow God too. And so you find in in chapter 2, verse 4 of Zechariah's prophecy, that he says... That the whole temple is filled with all of uh, with all of Jerusalem is filled, in fact, to overflowing. And you see, at the in, in chapter fourteen, verse sixteen, he talks about the fact that that the the nations who are going are going to come and they are going to be a part of this great celebration in Jerusalem as well. And what it tells us is that. As, as followers of God, as his children, our calling in this world is to be agents of hope and grace to a world of chaos and pain and struggle. The, the ultimate purpose of being a follower of God is to be his agents in this world, so that more and more and more people can know who God is and God's great plans for them and God's great dreams for them and his transforming power for them, and that we would be those agents. And it's the call on Israel centuries ago. It's the call on the church today. It is, it is where all that we do and say and believe is leading us, ultimately, is to be agents of hope and healing and grace. But in order to do that, God says to his people and he says to us, in order to do that, you have to have the right mindset. And more often than not, our thoughts about 
Our thoughts about being agents are, are, we do that when we feel like it. But the call of, of God is that we are to be his holy people. Because only holy people are able to be the kind of agents for God in a world that is opposed to God, that rejects God, that's antagonistic toward God and his people. The beginning of the prophecy, chapter 1, verse 6, says that, that we are, that he says, return to me and I'll return to you. Now, that doesn't mean God is standing back and saying, okay, you guys make the first move. God's already made a hundred moves. He's just waiting for them to make the hundred and first move. And he says to us, this, but this is the first point of it. Come back to me, return to me, and you will find that I will not disappoint you. But it, isn't, but it doesn't stop there. That's the beginning. As you move forward, you find in chapter 3 that, that he talks about Joshua, the, the high priest, and how he's clothed in, in filthy rags. And the prophet Zechariah sees this vision of him, and God says, let's clean him up because I'm going to make him pure. And he's a symbol of the, making the people pure. And you get to chapter 8, verse 3, and he talks about God's holy mountain, this place where, where God dwells and he invites his people to come and to be and then you get to chapter 14, and you find that, that God is, is talking about the very last words of this prophecy, that these odd things, where he's talking about how the bowls and the pots that they use to cook are holy. Now, when the people, when they, when they built the tabernacle, when they built the temple, there were special things that they put in, equipment that they put in there to, offer, to do the sacrifices, and there were bowls there. And these bowls, once they were consecrated, became holy. They were different than all the other bowls in everybody's house. But now God is saying, every bowl in every house is holy. And I think the message that he's communicating is, my people will be holy and everything about their lives will be holy. Even such mundane stuff as bowls that you eat out of. God's ultimate design for us is to be not just agents of hope and healing and grace, but holy agents. And that and, the, and the, what he's asking of us is to have a desire to be like God. Now, this idea of holiness often frightens us. We have bad images in our minds of the word holiness because it often, it often brings to mind things like strictness and narrowness. It often brings to mind rules and regulations. And we start thinking about checking off boxes. And we start thinking about looking right and dressing right and all of these external kinds of things that are not completely insignificant. But that's not really what holiness is about. Holiness is being like God. When God has said this to his people, in Exodus he says, I want you to be holy like I'm holy. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. It's, and, and we can't make ourselves holy. All God asks of us is to have the desire to be holy. To want to be like God. Because God can work with us when we want what he wants. But when we talk about holiness, again, rules, regulations, strictness, narrowness comes to mind. We have all of these definitions. 
It struck me recently that maybe the best definition of holiness is humility. Genuine, real humility. Not false humility, real humility. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And this is in the, this is in the upper room, the night he's arrested and goes to the cross the next day. And he says, he's warning them, and he says, you're going to be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming that those who, who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. And I started thinking about that. And I, I think in my mind, I've always had this mindset that the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders were basically just evil people. But Jesus seems to be saying, it's not so much that as it is their arrogance that has led them astray. It's it's their arrogance that that what they believe is right and nothing will change their mind. They no longer want to learn about God. They are not open to God. They they are the complete opposite of humility. And they end up putting the Son of God on the cross. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, or another way interpreting that, blessed are those who are humble. And when Paul wants to describe the very nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus, and says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, he talks about Jesus being humble. God can do anything with humility. If we're humble before God and other people, God can do amazing things with us. He can teach us. He can change us. He can work in our hearts and our lives. And humility will lead to love. You can appear to love and not be humble. But if you're really humble, you can't help but love. You can't help but care. You can't help but feel compassion. Because you have a spirit. Humility is a spirit that is open to other people. It is, it is a feeling that, that of sense of, I, I'm trying to decrease while, while God and others increase. And God can work with us when we're humble. Because we're willing to learn, we're willing to change. And I think one of the things that the church has wrestled with through the centuries, and I still see it today, is this sense of thinking, because I'm right then we can be arrogant about being right. And we think we can change the world by shoving people and pushing people and and pushing things down people's throat and demanding of people, even though that's not the way Jesus worked. To be holy is to be humble. To seek holiness is to seek humility. Because once you become humble... You start feeling compassion for people in need. You start seeing people in their brokenness and their, and their burdens and their struggles. And you want to love. And to live in humility, and to be humble, means you have to live humbly. And that's why holiness is always proven in relationships. We have these stories through the, through the centuries of, of people who want to be holy and they believe that to be holy, they escape 
from the temptations and the struggles of the world. And, and they go off and, you know, they sit on a 30-foot tower for 25 years. And maybe that's their calling, but I'm not sure that's really where holiness is shaped. I think holiness is shaped in relationship. It's always with people. It's never escape. It's always engagement. God doesn't doesn't call Israel to be his people so that they can they can escape everybody else. He calls them his he calls them to be his people so that they can engage with everybody else. Is it riskier? Of course it is. Because they often get led astray. They often miss the mark. They often give in to the temptations. But that's how holiness is shaped. It's in relationships. And so in chapter 7, verse 9, the prophet says, This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Judge fairly, show mercy and kindness to one another. Don't oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. Don't scheme against each other. You get to chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, and he sort of repeats the same thing, but he says, this is what you must do. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your courts that are just. Lead to peace. Don't scheme against each other. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. I hate all these things. If you're going to be holy, how you treat people, how you relate to people is essential. How we think about the burdens and the needs of the world is essential. You know, in our church, the Wesleyan church, our, our roots are in this very idea. We, we, are call, we are part of what's called the holiness movement. And uh, this 19th century movement of the church that, that focused on being holy. When you look back, there were some things that they, we would say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. But they understood that holiness was shaped in relationship and how you treat people. And in the beginnings of our church, in fact, our church was really formed because we realized that holiness was about taking a stand against slavery and taking a stand for women's rights. And our church, our church was founded on the idea that if you're going to be holy, you care about those kinds of things because you care about people. And you care about setting them free. And you care about the fact of them being treated equally and as human beings. But somewhere in the next hundred years, we sort of lost that idea. So that when it came time to the, in the 1960s, during the, during the civil rights movement, if you, if you looked at, at the march in Selma, you would find a lot of, of churches and clergy represented there, but you wouldn't find very many Wesleyans. Because we had come, we sort of, we gave into the idea that being holy meant escaping from the world, not engaging the world. And I think we're figuring some of that out. I think we're doing better. I think we're learning those lessons. I think we're starting to get back to our roots. But I think one of the things is that when you engage with people, life is messy. People, situations, relationships are messy. And it's easier to escape it. But the call of the gospel is to be agents of grace and hope and healing in the middle of it. But here's the thing about being holy. We will never really truly be humble, holy followers of God until we come to believe 
that we are God's cherished possession. We need to understand that we are God's cherished possession. In chapter 2 of Zechariah's prophecy, verse 8, he says, anyone who harms you harms my most precious possession. Some, the King James translation had, whoever harms you touches the apple of my eye. Why is it that Israel can, can be, live in humility? Why is it that Israel can desire to be like God and to let God transform them and to take risks and to, to live in a spirit of, of sacrifice and surrender? Because they're God's cherished possession. You think about people that you know, maybe even your own life. People who are bullies don't do that because they're secure within themselves. It's because they're insecure. People who, who have to make sure everybody knows they're right don't do that because they're secure in themselves. It's because they're insecure. When we fight for what we want, it's not because we are secure in ourselves. It's because we feel insecure in ourselves. And we've missed it. God says, you can live as individually and corporately in humility because you're my cherished possession. You know that I love you. I care for you. You know that you're important to me. You know that, that I will always be with you. Does it mean life's going to always be easy and simple? No, not by any means. You look at John 13, when Jesus is again meeting with his disciples. And he said, it's, John says... That Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him authority over everything and he'd come from God and will return to God, got up from the table, took off his robe, took a basin, and got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet. John wants us to understand Jesus can do that because he knows who he is in his Father. He knows. He knows he's loved by his Father. And so he can give himself away. Because whatever he gives away will never equal or match or come close to the love of the Father for him. And you and I need to, to live in that same truth. We will never truly desire to be, to be individuals and a church that exudes humility and love and risk. It doesn't need to, to, to fight for our rights because we know who we are in our Father. And it's this father who is, who is the one who rescues us continually. God is the great shepherd who rescues his lost lambs over and over and over again. The, the idea of the shepherd is, is prevalent in the prophecy of Zechariah. Sometimes it's addressing using shepherds in a positive way, sometimes a negative way. But it is, God is saying in, in chapter 9, verse 16, he talks about how this shepherd, that he will, he will, the Lord God will rescue his people just like a shepherd rescues his sheep. I've been thinking about this idea of God bringing his people back from exile recently. And I've always had in my mind for as long as I can remember that the, the, the key, most, most graphic example of God's love for his people is the Exodus. When God brings his people out of Egypt 
and sets them up as his people, as a nation. But I'm beginning to think that maybe, maybe an even more profound vision of, of who God is toward his people is the return from exile. Because the people are in Egypt, not because they sin. They're in Egypt because that was how God rescued them from death, from famine. And after years of being in Egypt, eventually the Egyptians enslaved them. And so when God brings them out of Egypt, it's not because they've done something wrong. It's because he just simply chosen them, bringing them out to be his nation. But when they come back from exile, it's a whole different story. They go into exile because they reject God, because they'd rather worship the gods of the nations around them, because they don't want to have anything to do with God anymore. And so he says, fine, you want to, you want to put your, your lives in the hands of Baal and Asherah and Molech? All right, I'll let you do that. See how that works for you. And they end up in exile. And if it were you and me, they'd still be in exile. But after 70 years, God is chomping at the bit to bring them home, to rescue them. Because that's who God is. God rescues his lost sheep. That's how precious we are to him. The parable that Jesus tells about the lost sheep. This is not a sheep who's never been a part of the shepherd's flock. That's one of the sheep in the flock who runs off. And the shepherd goes and gets him. The image in the prayer room, I was looking at it again last night. This image of the shepherd who has just rescued his sheep and holds him close. That's the image of God toward us. This is who we are to God. A special treasured possession. But we can never forget that We are God's treasured possession, and we know we're his treasured possession. We see it because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Zechariah has more mentions of the Messiah in his prophecy than any of the other minor prophets. You will find, if you're reading through the New Testament and you come across a prophecy of the Old Testament, a lot of them are from Zechariah. He talks a lot about it. Chapter 6 is one of the places, just one of the places where he talks about him raising up this branch. This is this one who will come and he will rescue my people. It's all because of Jesus. When you get to the end of the prophecy, he talks about celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And it, it sort of surprised me that he would say, here's the culmination of making my people holy. Here's the culmination of that day when all the nations come together and they celebrate. I would have thought it would have been the Passover. But it's the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, as it's now called. And you will still see some Jews who celebrate this day. It's the day when they're celebrating. They set up little lean-tos, little huts, tents. It takes them all the way back to when they're in the wilderness, when they lived in tents, and they lived in, in little, little lean-tos, and, they, and God protected them for 40 years in the wilderness. And their clothes didn't wear out, and they had food to eat and water to drink and everything that they needed. And the whole point of that is that God cares so deeply about us. We can be sure he will care for us. He is close to us. He loves us. I think maybe the culmination of that whole festival 
is the beginning of John's gospel when he says the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Right in the middle of us. This is our God. He wants to be close to us. He loves us. If you were here this summer when Cindy preached, she mentioned about how our granddaughter Emma likes to say to us when either we go to their house or she comes to ours and we, and if I come home in the middle of the you know, late day when she's there, one of the first things she always says to me is, shoes off, Grandpa, shoes off. She just said it to me this week. Shoes off, Grandpa. In fact, she reached over and started untying my shoes to get them off. Shoes off, Grandpa. Shoes off. She says, shoes off, Grandma. Shoes off. It took us a little while to figure out what that meant to her. But we finally came to the realization that she, in her mind, if you take your shoes off, it means you're staying. And she knows sometimes you leave your shoes on because you're only there in and out. You're only there for a moment. And she wants us to stay. And so she figures if we take our shoes off, we have to stay. And I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Moses in the burning bush. And he sees this bush on fire and he says to himself, huh, it's a bush that's burning on fire, but it's not burning up. Maybe I should check this out. And he walks over and he stands there and he hears God speak to him. And he says, what, Moses, take your shoes off. Because you're on holy ground. And here's the thing about God. God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And when God asked Moses to take his shoes off, it's because God has already taken his shoes off. He has already come down to this earth. The God who is, who is infinite comes and appears. The God who cannot be confined chooses a place where his people can come and meet him. The God who, who knows no boundaries takes on flesh. And this is the God who calls us to be his holy agents in this world. Because we're his treasured possession. And he will go to every length possible. Help us know how valuable we are to him so that we can help other people know how valuable they are to him. You know, sometimes when we think about prophecy, we sort of have this sense of fear. Some of the images even that we sang about, lightning crashing and uh, lightning flashing and thunder crashing and chariots and stars falling and all of those things. And, and there is a period of time in the history of the church where we've used prophecy to instill fear. We think if we just scare people enough, they'll come to Jesus. That's not really the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is to awaken us to who God is. To awaken us to who we are. And to awaken us to what we can be in him. And God the Almighty. In Jesus Christ is calling every one of us. 
to understand, to see, to grasp that we are his precious, cherished possession who goes forth to be his holy agents of hope and grace in a world that is desperate to know that. Holy Father, we thank you for your your word to us. Help us to see who we are to you and what we can be in you. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.
Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.